3CR 855am. Good morning and welcome to breakfast. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting today from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon peoples of the Kulin Nations. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. Welcome to Wednesday Breakfast. Um, I'm Jacob. And I'm Claudia. Wonderful to be here with you and thank you for choosing to listen to Wednesday Breakfast this morning. Thank you indeed. And Claudia, how are you on this cold, grim morning? (laughs) I feel like it's slightly warmer each day this week, so uh, I'm trying to keep positive. But um, yes, it has been cold indeed. And uh, lovely to have you back with us. Yeah, no, After it's, your um, short COVID spell, <laughs> all recovered. Yes, fully recovered. It was um, quite mild this time around, thankfully. Uh, but yeah, the new strain seems to be getting a lot of people <laughs> lately, um, and cases are only going up. So be careful, people. Yeah, I went and had my fourth jab last week, so um, all up to date now. Mm. Fingers crossed. (laughs) (laughs) Well done, well done. And what have we got on for the show today, Jacob? I think your first cab off the rank. Yeah, many interesting segments. Um, As a lot of our listeners will know, last week was COP27, the Conference of Parties held in Egypt, um, in which a number of countries around the world met to speak about climate change and try to come to an agreement, particularly on a loss and damage fund, uh, which is an agreement that wealthy countries will fund the uh, the impacts of climate change. That's generally happening in less wealthier countries uh, who are more susceptible to the climate crisis. So I spoke with a writer and academic, Gideon Polyar, about this idea of a global carbon debt. Uh, so this idea that emitters should pay $200 per tonne of carbon released into the atmosphere. So that'll be at 7.10. And then we've got a lovely interview at 7.30. Yes, we have uh, Kirby Fenwick joining us live in the studio. She is a writer and audio producer who works at the intersection of feminism, history and sport. So she's going to be joining us to talk about women in sport and a little bit about the AFLW final on Sunday because uh, she actually produced an award-winning audio documentary called The First Day in February five years ago and that first day in February was the inaugural AFLW game in uh, Melbourne. So five years on, it'll be really interesting to hear her reflections on growth in uh, football and, and other women's sports as well as Lots of issues, you know, with diversity in media and uh, still lots of uh, barriers to uh, equality there. So, yep, Mm. she'll be joining us at 7.30. Wonderful. That one sounds really exciting. Mm. Uh, And at 7.50, 10 to 8, we'll also be speaking with Antonia Burke, uh, who has been quite active on a a case uh, between the Manupi clan of the Tiwi Islands and the gas company Santos, who is trying to drill on their ocean country. So I spoke with Antonia last week 
the the clan actually won the original case against Santos, claiming that there hadn't been adequate consultation. Uh, but Santos has since appealed, um, and we'll share some updates about what's happened uh, on that case later on. But that was a really um, enriching conversation. Can't wait to hear that. Yes. And then to round off the show at 10 past 8, we're going to be speaking with Jay Coonan from the Anti-Poverty Centre about the way in which state politicians have or have not engaged with the impact of poverty on a growing number of Victorians ahead of the mm. state election on Saturday. Oh, very, very topical. Yeah. And this state election has been absorbing a lot of my <laughs> brain this week. What's been on your mind? Uh, what issues are you looking at for voting on Saturday? Well, I guess uh, preparing for this interview, really, uh, what came to mind was how there's been so much talk about cost of living, but mm. a lot of the emphasis has been on um, people who are homeowners or, or home buyers. So mm. people who aren't in the home buying, you know, demographic um, are really missing out, and a lot of the reforms that are being offered aren't really reaching the most vulnerable people who are really doing it tough at the moment. So that's been uh, something that I've been uh, thinking about and looking forward to talking to Jay about also later this uh, this morning. Mm, that's been on my mind a lot as well, actually. The, um, the rental... I don't know if you call it a crisis, but it definitely feels like one. I think so. At the well, moment, less than one percent vacancies, and yeah, yeah, people not being able to work in local towns because they can't get rental accommodation and so forth. So, mm. really having a huge knock-on effect. Absolutely, the cost of living, rent. I think climate as well for me has been a major one, and it's great to see. Um, the Victorian government taking uh, a really progressive stance on emissions reduction. But as always, I think we can be a bit more ambitious. Um, so that'll definitely be front of mind at the ballot box for me. Um, and I know there's been a lot of activities happening around logging too. Um, so that, yeah, that will require a bit more research on my end. <laughs> um, but will definitely be an issue that will be taken with me. Yeah, definitely um, a lot of issues that are really fundamental to our environment and future sustainability that, um, yeah, we need to look at at mm. this election. Which is a wonderful segue into our first segment. Exactly. Um, which we will be returning to right after this. Uh, this song is called Whisper in My Ear by Powen.
3CR 855 AM, you're on Wednesday Breakfast with Jacob and Claudia. Uh, Now, that one was Dream Satisfaction by Panel of Judges and Bad Fabricio. Apologies uh, for getting the name wrong early before. Uh, So, now we're going to jump into our first segment. As COP27 drew to a close on the weekend, countries agreed to a historic loss and damage fund a commitment from wealthy countries to give money to poorer countries that are vulnerable to the effects of the climate crisis. The fund is an acknowledgement of who will bear at least some of the responsibility for the costs of climate adaptation. But who will pay for it? And will it go far enough? Gideon Polyar is a retired scientist, former lecturer and a writer who recently wrote on global carbon debt, The idea that emitters should pay at least $200 per tonne of carbon released into the atmosphere. I spoke with Gideon last week. It's currently taking place in Egypt. There's lots of different items on the agenda, but the main one that seems to be grabbing people's attention is the International Mechanism for Loss and Damage. So would you be able to tell us um, exactly what that means and why do you think developing nations are pushing for it well there 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 are various ways of financing uh, uh the developing world the global south in the in in the current uh situation and one way is through providing finance so they can do renewable energy Another way is to is to provide finance for adaptation, but a, a, a major third element is reparations for actual loss and damage. You can imagine, for example, Kiribati going under the under the ocean, or the Maldives, for example, um, and that that is what African countries and uh, South Asian countries have been have been calling for for. Uh, reparations for loss and damage. Now, of course, in international law, it's accepted that reparations should be full, that the damage should be accounted, and the and the guilty guilty party has to pay full reparations. However, uh, climate change is the whole problem is really the central central problem of dealing with climate change. Is, is the whole notion of accountability and of a price on carbon. So, for example, science-trained um, Pope Francis has said that the environmental and social cost of, 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 of environmental damage and social damage should be fully borne by the perpetrator. And Lord Stern, the, the very eminent economist, has talked of, of what he what he, what he calls um, externalities, and he's he's said that um, that climate change is the greatest market failure in history because the polluters have just simply ignored the externality of the environmental and social damage that has been caused, and so all of these worthy countries gather together for COP one to COP twenty seven. And the major polluters just I ignore the the number of, of what the carbon price uh, should be be, 
and and they just fiddle around at at, at the edges that because the the actual um, carbon price should be according to world experts coming at it from various points of view should be about 200 US dollars per tonne of CO2 equivalent. According to the International Monetary Fund, the global average applied carbon price is $2 per tonne of CO2 equivalent. So I explained it to my grandchildren. It's as if the restaurant owner comes to us with the bill at the end of our fantastic meal and says it's $200. And we very politely tell him, uh, sorry, we're only going to pay two. Developing countries, the global South countries, suffering from climate change, but not having made any sort of major contribution to it, uh, can say, well, the least you could do is offer uh, offer us some sort of uh, set up a, a loss and damage fund to which the world would contribute. So far at COP27, there have been half a dozen countries that have uh, um, uh, offered offered monies to this fund. Uh, I think Belgium is one, Ireland, New Zealand, Austria. Um, They've all offered up the order of about $10 million. Uh, Germany has offered a, a scheme an insurance scheme worth about $170 million. The total offerings are about from this limited set of what we'd call quote unquote civilized countries is about 300 million. However, compare this with the actual global carbon debt. That's multiplying the pollution by the price and it's about 250 trillion. That is 250 million million versus the 300 million that is being offered so far at COP27. That is 1 million times less than the actual damage related cost. And this um, 250 trillion dollar global carbon debt. I mean, when we think about that figure, what would the money be used for? The, the way I put it is that if you have conventional debt, you know, you've o- overdone your, your, your credit card or you can't pay your mortgage, there, there, are, there are resolute, resolute financial penalties and you'll be hunted down. And, and, and the only way you can deal with this debt, well, there, there are ways you can deal with it. You can default. You can declare bankruptcy. You can run away to the Northern Territory. Or if you're a government, you can print money. But a carbon debt is inescapable, a damage-related carbon debt. A very good example is unless with sea levels rising and predicted to be maybe as much as two metres by the end of the century, mm-hmm. unless sea walls are built at huge expense, cities and towns and arable land are going to be inundated. In fact, half of New South Wales is inundated at the moment. Um, A a substantial part of of Pakistan is is inundated. And and poor Bangladesh gets regularly, very substantially uh, inundated 
each year. So it's an inescapable carbon debt. The damage related carbon debt is an inescapable debt. And we're essentially leaving this debt for the next generation. It is the most extraordinary grand larceny in human history and is appalling what we'd call uh, intergenerational inequity and intergenerational theft. I mean, there's a very good example. I mean, put it in numbers. The world has a, a carbon debt of 250 trillion. Remember that the world's um, GDP, annual GDP, is about 100 trillion. That that carbon debt is increasing at about at at about 16 trillion dollars a year. These are US dollars. And let's look at Australia. Australia has a carbon debt that you can calculate on the basis of $200 per tonne of CO2 equivalent. Australia's carbon debt is $5 trillion. It's increasing at $400 um, billion per year and at about $40,000 US dollars per head per year for under 30-year-old Australians. But it's, they're the inescapable numbers. Once you accept what these expert climate scientists and economists have said is a damage-related carbon debt of $200 per tonne of CO2 equipment. But it is off the table in Australia because it's a, it's a look-the-other-way country and anything, anything, anything that is remotely serious is ignored with extraordinary resolution. Mm. And this this idea of paying for damages as well has been something that's been refuted a lot at COP27 by a lot of the countries. Why do you think first world or should we say developed nations like Australia are so hesitant to pay loss and damage or carbon debt? Well, the US, for all its, its, its claims under the Biden administration to be tackling climate change uh, and Australia, which of course follows America, uh, both America and Australia have said no uh, to a damage damage fund. And, um, And the fundamental reason is perhaps their advisors in secret have come up with the same sort of elementary first year high school arithmetic calculations that I've just given you and have said that this is, uh, we're facing an enormous debt if we give any sort of, give in to any sort of notion of any sort of reparations. If we allow a foot in the door to reparations, um, then, then we could be asked to pay full reparations and that they just certainly do not want to do. So it's it's an it's an example of a of just an immense first world lie to avoid the threat of massive reparations, and I've given you the example of some of these nice civilized countries, half a dozen of these nice European countries, with the sort of quite reasonable human rights records and all the rest of it. They've come up with three hundred million dollars as an offer, mm. whereas the actual this is actually one million times less than the total uh, damage-related carbon debt of the world. 
So even the nice guys are only tippy-toeing around the problem. And the bad guys, America and Australia, won't have anything to do with it at all. And I think this whole situation really much does reflect uh, the state of affairs when it comes to international cooperation on climate action. What do you think it will take for Australia to actually fulfil its Paris climate agreement and keep warming to one and a half degrees? Well, again, it's it's elementary. I think I think back to when you could probably remember because it wasn't that many years ago to when when I was introduced to the hydrological cycle at high school, maybe first year high school, second year high school. As you warm the water, you increase the evaporation and it goes up and the humidity in the atmosphere, the water content increases and eventually it comes down. So it's, it's hardly surprising, um, in, even in, in cold, frigid Victoria, that affected by climate change and warming of the oceans to about two degrees, that this is happening. It, it, evaporation has increased, water content of the atmosphere is happening, and, and then down it comes. If, if you've ever been to the South Pacific, there's a, you'll have beautiful sunny days, and then come the evening, around about five or six o'clock, the temperature falls slightly, and down you have these immense torrents of water come down. So it's it, it's um it's something that well, it's quite appalling. The kids understand this, <laughs> and 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 yet society. Well, I I think I think when this sort of flooding becomes normal, the new normal. And in between with El Nino's that the disastrous fires and droughts become the new normal as well. Hmm. Then perhaps, but so far in Australia, that hasn't happened. And we have a new Labor government whose major merit is, is that it's, it's actually better than the, <laughs> the, the coalition government, which was absolutely, utterly, unspeakably appalling. Um, they propose to tackle climate change, but they also propose to open 100 new coal and gas uh, uh, exploitations. Hmm. I mean, it's it, it's an ab- absolute, and they won't. They they reject any notion of a carbon price, or certainly of a carbon tax. Um, Tony Abbott's greatest contribution to Australian and world culture and, and world survival is to make a carbon tax a dirty word. <laughs> so Labor, which is heavily wedged on most issues by the coalition, won't, won't, won't use the, the, that, that dread term of, of carbon tax. So I, I really don't know what it's going to take. You're on 3CR 855 AM. Uh, That was an interview with Gideon Polya, a writer and former scientist, all about the loss and damage fund at COP27 um, and speaking about this idea of carbon debt that emitters should pay $200 per carbon tonne released into the atmosphere. We're going to jump to a community service announcement and we'll be right back after this. 
Did you miss 3CR's broadcast of the inaugural historic first Trans Pride March Melbourne on Sunday 13 November? Perhaps you want to break a binary and listen to it again. Well, either way, you can. It's now available for listing at 3cr.org.au, Trans Pride March Melbourne. Join in the historic occasion and support our trans and gender diverse communities here in Nam. 3CR Radical Radio, proudly supporting trans and gender diverse people as part of diversity in Nam. 3cr.org.au, Trans Pride March Melbourne. CR is a community radio license holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how 3CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. Australia's most iconic bike riding holiday, the Great Vic Bike Ride, is on from Saturday 26th of November to Sunday 4th of December. This rolling bike festival will have you pedalling along the beautiful Great Ocean Road, through the Otways and Golden Plains. Tickets include all meals, a camping spot, luggage transfers, daily entertainment and more. Sign up at www.greatvic.com.au Use promo code 3CR to get 10% off. Great Vic Bike Ride, a 3CR supporter. And welcome back to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, 8.55am on the dial. And I'm Claudia. We now have Kirby Fenwick in the studio with, with us this morning. Kirby is a writer and audio producer working at the intersection of feminism and history, particularly in the realm of sport. In 2018, Kirby won the Oral History Victoria Award for her audio documentary, The First Friday in February, which tells the story of the first ever AFLW game. In 2020, Kirby co-founded Siren, a women in sport collective which strives to elevate women's voices in sports media and deliver feminist content that challenges the status quo. She joins me now ahead of the AFLW Grand Final this Sunday to tell us more about diversity in women's sport and the areas of inequality being tackled. Welcome to breakfast, Kirby. Thank you so much for having me. Very lovely to have you here. Now, women's sport is growing rapidly, but does not enjoy the same parity as men's sport. 
Can you tell us the main areas of inequality? That's such a big question. <laughs> I think um, it's interesting, firstly, to think about this idea of women's sport growing rapidly. Um, there's a great paper by Fiona McLaughlin who talks about this idea of progress narratives in, in women's sport. Um, and she sort of dived right back into the newspaper archives, you know, 130 years and found that we've been having this conversation about women's sport is, you know, things are going so amazing and, you know, this is this is it now for 100 plus years. So it's kind of very interesting to put the current um, situation in the context of that history. Um, are we really making progress? I think is an interesting question to ask ourselves. And when we think about the inequalities um, that still persist, um, you have to sort of wonder um, because you look at some... Um, elite sort of national competitions that, and I'm thinking of things like the AFLW here that are not even afforded a complete season. So they don't actually get to play every team in the competition. Um, and they you know there's lots of instances where athletes just are not able to be full time because they're just not paid enough. Um, so there's a lot of those kind of inequalities that persist. And I think also the media coverage is a big one as well. I think we know we have research that consistently shows that women's sport struggles to get even 10% of media coverage. And that's something that we have research dating back, you know, 20, 30, 40 years to demonstrate that that's an ongoing problem. Mm. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because I know you've recently explored that very issue in a research project for your honours thesis. Um, can you tell us a bit more about what you found in terms of the marginalisation of women in sports media and some of the layers of complexity that you discovered? Yeah, I wish I could say that I was surprised by my research. <laughs> um, I wasn't. Um, I was kind of expecting um, what I found to be the case. So I spoke to 12 women uh, in sports journalism, a, a range of women who sort of you might consider more pioneers who had been in and around sports journalism for sort of 20 plus years, uh, women who was you might consider to be more just sort of established. So they've been on the scene for maybe between five and 15 years. And then I also, also spoke to emerging or aspiring women, so women who were not yet in the industry or had only been in the industry for a short time. And what I found was that there wasn't a huge difference between the sort of challenges and barriers that women who were very new or not yet in the industry and women who had been around for a couple of decades, there wasn't a lot of difference between the things that they were identifying. And that kind of, I think, demonstrates that um, not a lot has changed and there's still uh, a lot um, of challenges that women in sports journalism face just trying to do their job. Mm. Do you want to go into some of the examples of those sorts of challenges? Yeah, I think some of the most significant ones are this idea that women have to prove themselves in sport. And I think you can trace that really to the very foundations of sport as being a place for and by men. And so women or anyone else um, is not who is sort of not a cis white man. Um, this is not their space. And so there is this constant sort of feeling of needing to prove yourself, to prove your expertise, to prove your knowledge, to prove that you belong here. And that's exhausting. 
Um, I think working in media is is challenging as it is, you know, all those deadlines and having to meet all those sort of requirements. And then on top of that, having to just prove that you that you deserve to be here, that you have the experience, the skill, the knowledge. And that was something in my research that was identified by women who were pioneers and women who were emerging, by women who were like across the the generational cohorts. So this is not something that's specific to someone that's, say, only been doing this for six months. This is something that a woman who had been working in the industry for 20 years still felt that she had to prove herself. Uh, So I think that's a really, uh, a really big one that is just, yeah, pervasive and incredibly frustrating. That must be incredibly hard to have been in a role for, for that long, um, obviously, you know, doing the job, mm. but still feeling that you are not respected in the same way or that you're not producing the same standard. Gosh, yeah, yeah. that's really quite astounding. You would imagine that that would slowly dissipate. You would hope so. Um, and I think that was really disappointing for me personally to hear that, to think, oh, my God, like being in the industry for a really long time doesn't mean that you you know magically are able to overcome those kind of things they're still there um and there was you know some other things that were identified things like the pay gap which i think we all know about um the challenges of trying to balance family and or parenting with a job that is kind of all hours i mean sport happens often a lot on the weekend or the evening um and so that makes things quite challenging I think social media was a big one that came up as well. Um, you know, we know that women are a group on social media that are often or more often likely to be the target of abuse. And I think when you sort of layer in sport, a space where, you know, women have had to fight for every kind of opportunity that, that, that they've had, that just kind of exacerbates that situation. So there were some women that I spoke to that kind of don't engage in social media at all. And possibly they they spoke about that being a detriment to their career because if you're not able to use social media to sort of share your work and grow your profile what does that mean for your career long term because it's kind of expected that that's what we do now we use twitter we use facebook we use instagram or various other platforms that i'm too old to engage with (laughs) um to grow our career but if you're sort of concerned about doing that because of the pushback that you might get from you know a whole bunch of faceless people what does that mean for your career long term so i think that's that's a big challenge as well Mm. Mm, that's really interesting and your documentary first day in february five years ago you made that um i just wondered what your reflections are now the game's been you know up on the the you know national (laughs) platform for five years um how do you feel about it 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 sounds like you feel there hasn't been much progression um though to the 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 lay person watching the news it seems like there is lots of women's sport out there so um could you share a little bit about the thoughts you've had since you uh, captured the voices of those people attending that first game. Yeah. It's scary to think it's been five years, actually. <laughs> but um, it's it's funny. I was thinking about this question last night, and I think when I think about that project now, I think so much of the feeling and the emotion that was expressed by the women that I spoke to is still very much a part of the story. 
there is still this very emotional connection that people have with the AFLW and with the players and the teams. And I think that um, has kind of just kept happening over the last few years as more and more teams have come in and people who were, say, a North Melbourne supporter finally got a team or a Sydney Swan supporter finally got their team. So I feel like in many ways the feelings that were such a big part of that documentary are still very relevant to the conversation today. Um, yeah, I mean, the AFLW has changed a lot, absolutely. Uh, I think that there is a lot of media coverage around it, which is incredibly positive. Um, but, yeah, it would be interesting maybe to go and do a sort of five years later uh, reflection piece, <laughs> uh, maybe maybe get some of those people that I spoke to back and have a chat to them and see sort of, you know, what they're thinking and feeling five years later. Um, yeah, I mean, sometimes I think, I do think five years later, Hmm, I would have maybe made different choices in terms of the production, but uh, I think that's to be expected. Yeah, uh, I think um, yeah, we all we all do that if we look <laughs> back in time. Yeah, so we're going to come a bit later to talking about the importance of of, of capturing stories and uh, historical stories, but I wanted to ask you specifically at this point, um, what prompted you to capture those voices of the people attending that first match? Mm. Well, I was there. I went along to that game. Uh, I think I got there like two hours before the first bounce because I was so worried about not being able to get in. Um, I'm not sure if people recall, but originally that first game was scheduled to be played at Olympic Park, um, which was down uh, in that sort of MCG precinct with, um, you know, Rod Laver and, and those sort of places. That's just kind of like a training ground there's no kind of grandstands there or, or really seating or undercover areas that's where they had scheduled the first game of the AFLW and then sort of the community pressure and the you know the media focus kind of pushed it to um to Princess Park in Carlton and at the time the capacity of that ground I think was about 20,000 22 and a half thousand or something like that and I just felt very much like I need to get here I don't want to miss out on this moment um, and yeah, I, I was in that crowd and feeling all those like incredible emotions of having been a lifelong footy fan and finally seeing people that looked like me, obviously much younger and fitter, <laughs> um, you know, out on a footy field playing this game that I had grown up supporting. It was a, a really emotional experience. And I was still having those feelings like this was in February and like months later, I was still thinking about like mm. how important that game was. And yeah, there was video footage and we had the broadcast and there was radio and there was plenty of media coverage of it. And, you know, I knew that players would release books and all sorts of things in, in later years. But what I who I really wanted to talk to was the people like me, the fans who had just gone along. And so I just had this idea that I would um, make an audio documentary and I had no idea what that actually meant and that's probably for the best because <laughs> I'm not sure I would have done it if I knew. Um, but, yeah, I just decided I, that I wanted to talk to people and sort of capture their stories and, and um, yeah, record that moment in a really personal way. And the fans are such a big part of Huge, yeah. Without the fans, what, what are we doing? Yeah. We're going to take a listen to a, a short clip from uh, Kirby's audio documentary now. It felt like something that my heart and my brain had wanted for so long. And I truly didn't believe I would ever see it. It was, it was bigger than football. I think it finally hit me that 
The ball's being tossed for the first game. There is no going back now. Here come the Pies, led out by skipper Steph Kiyochi. And here come the Blues, led out by captain Lauren Arnell. It's before AFLW, after AFLW. It's a new era in our great game. On Friday, February 3rd, 2017, Aussie Rules football changed forever. Wonderful stuff. It gives me goosebumps <laughs> listening to it now. That documentary won the 2018 Victorian Oral History Award. And uh, I should mention at this point that Kirby and I uh, are soon to be affiliates at <laughs> Oral History Victoria, uh, an organisation I've been involved in for quite a while and uh, when I approached Kirby uh, it was in relation to the fact that I knew that she'd won this award but since then she has also uh, decided to join the organisation's committee Uh, so that's something very exciting for me personally. Um, So you won this award and I think you know that says something about the importance of capturing voices like these. Can you talk a little bit about why uh, storytelling and particularly telling stories um, that have a historical significance are important in women's sports? God, that's such a big question. Um, I think when you think about the history of women's sport, there are so many stories that have just gone untold and so many moments that, you know, are sort of lost really to time um, for various reasons. And I think that's why I feel quite sort of compelled to try to record these kind of things or tell these stories because they haven't been given the sort of opportunity to be a part of the cultural narrative that we have about sport and I think they deserve to be. And I, I just, I think telling, storytelling is so important. It's such an integral part of the way that we communicate with each other and the way that we sort of build the sense that we have of ourselves and of our communities. And, and being able to tell those stories is, it's something that I feel quite strongly about. And I think that there is just a huge amount of value. I just, I get so much joy too out of finding some random thing in the archives and being able to share it with people and have them go, oh my God, really? I'm like, yeah, how amazing is this history of women's sport that there just are so many untold stories. So um, yeah, it's hugely important. And I think too, one of the reasons why I'm so invested in it is that I have this perhaps incredibly optimistic (laughs) belief that we might be able to shift some of the cultural narrative that we have about sport and who sport is for by telling these stories and by bringing new and more voices into the conversation. And maybe we can begin to break down some of those things in sport that have continued to marginalise people and limit their access and you know, stop them sort of going to sport or participating in sport. If we can reshape this idea that we have of sport through storytelling, I I just think that's a real positive thing. That sounds like a really uh, nice note to leave things on. But um, before we uh, do wrap up, do you have a pick for the women's 
football grand final mm, this that's Sunday? A, <laughs> that's a tough one. Um, I think mm, my heart says Melbourne because I would just love like Daisy Pearce and Karen Paxman to have an AFLW premiership. I just feel like that would be some perfect sort of, you know, footy poetry happening right there. Um but I think you know it's a Brisbane home game. Does that give them some kind of um, some kind of edge there? Mm, I'm, look, I'm going to go Melbourne just because I would love Daisy and Karen to Karen Paxman to get a premiership. Um, but I'm, I'm honestly, I just hope it's a great game, which is such a cop out. I know. <laughs> but... Well, I'm sure there's lots of listeners out there that are hoping Melbourne will <laughs> take the title as well. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. It's just been wonderful talking with you. And that was Kirby Fenwick, writer and audio producer of First Friday in February and co-founder of women's sport media collective Siren, speaking to us about diversity in women's sport. And I'll just give a few details for how you can find out more about Kirby's work. Uh, She has her own website and you can listen to the full audio of First Friday in February there. And... The Siren Sport website is www.sirensport.com.au. Wonderful. And we're going to jump to a track now. This one's Mikhail by Laura Jean.
Beautiful track there by Laura Jean. That one was Mikhail. You're on 3CR Breakfast, joined by myself, Jacob, and Claudia. Turning the dial a bit now, we're going to be speaking on a court case between uh, a clan of Tiwi Islanders and a gas company, Santos. So a $4.7 billion gas project led by Santos in the Timor Sea will remain paused as Napi clan elder Dennis Tipakapalipa and his community wait on the verdict of a federal court appeal. Environmental lawyers representing Mr. Tipakapalipa successfully argued that the group was not properly consulted before approval for the project was granted by the regulator in February. The appeal took place in Melbourne last week, Antonia Burke is a Manapi community representative and a consultant on the case who shared an update with us. This has been quite a long process um, for you guys. How is everyone holding up today? Yeah, good. We're actually travelling home today, so we're happy. (laughs) We got down here on Monday night um, just so that we could be ready for court on Tuesday morning. But, yeah, so far so good. We're all feeling very... um, confident and um you know we know it's going to be a little bit why a little bit of time before they make the decision but we're still in high spirits mm, that's really good to hear and, and can you give us a brief overview of what's been happening in the case so far yeah sure just for the appeal or for the whole case um probably just the appeal is fine yeah okay so um we actually beat Santos already and not Seema in the court, in the federal court. Um, they travelled over to the Tiwi Islands and we had an on-country hearing over there. And then we heard the rest of the case in Darwin. So the judge flew from Melbourne and all of his staff and all of the legal teams came up to Darwin and heard our case there, um, which we won. And immediately Santos said in the court that they would appeal and the judge said that he would expect an appeal. Um, What we know is that straight after we we beat Santos, their stocks went down on the Australian Stock Exchange within, I think there was like half an hour left on the market and and it dropped. Um, And we know that they've said to the ASX review that they had to appeal because they owed it to their investors from South Korea and Japan. Mm. Um, So instead of just saying, okay, we didn't consult, we've just lost our case, Um, but instead of just coming and doing the consultation so that they could start drilling again, they decided to take us to court. So we've all had to travel down here, spend more money, more time and more effort um, in court with more people, more barristers and you know, now there's three judges. So with the appeal, there's three new judges um, and it's called the full federal court. And so three of them sit on the, you know, up the top and then you have about 12 or 13 lawyers and barristers sitting at the bar all arguing with each other um, and they're unpacking and try- and interpreting. There's three words. It's whether or not, Tiwi people, traditional owners, have any interests, activities or functions in the area where they want to build this gas platform. Um, It's really frustrating. It's really triggering for all of us as well. Like there was one point where 
I actually had to leave the court and just have a big cry and, you know, I was angry, but really underneath it was just hurt listening to these people sitting in a courtroom talking about the country where we all live and have lived for thousands of years and trying to say that we don't have any rights to speak for it, that we don't have any functions there, we don't have any interest in the area and we don't have any activities there. Um, so on, on day one, it was Santos's turn to talk first. So they got up and, you know, started their appeal and why our judge from the original hearing made the wrong decision. And they're trying to say that he interpreted the, the law wrong with his decision. Um, yeah, so that was day one. And then Noxema got up and had a bit of a, a, a talk. Um, they're the offshore regulator who approved Santos to do the drilling in the first place. And then, you know, they finished and our lawyer got up for about 10 minutes and kind of it was like, <laughs> like watching her pull the pin out of the grenade and just drop it, you know. She's amazing. Um, and then on day two we we started first. Our barrister got up and, you know, argued for us. She was amazing. Her name's Claire Harris. She's she's based here in Melbourne. Um, she did a really amazing job and very sensitive and, and understanding in her approach. Like she's very kind and, and calm, whereas the others are kind of, you know, they're trying to fight and put their put their point forward. <laughs> so it's good she makes us look better. Yeah. On Tuesday we also had a, a rally, a protest at mm. the front of the federal court. So we had lots of media come and, um, you know, some protesters who are against fossil fuels and they helped us on the on the steps of the of the court and we had a lot of our family live down here in the Tiwi Islands as well um, so they turned up and we bought our traditional ochre from the Tiwi Islands that we prepared before we came down um, and we all painted up and we did our ceremony at the front on you know in the courtyard and Everyone got to witness it and it was amazing. It's like we brought the spirit of our country to the steps of that court. And, you know, the main reason why we came is because we wanted to remind all of those people sitting in that court making decisions about us that there's human beings behind this decision. It's not just this legal thing that they, you know, going to sit down and talk about. It's mm -hmm. about us. And it must have been quite a, a special moment and what I imagine has otherwise been a very arduous process. Um, and you mentioned before this whole legal um, concept of functions, interests and activities, which to me feels um, incredibly, you know, baffling that they could even question such a thing when you've had connection to the land for tens of thousands, if not more, um, amount of years. I mean, how can a legal system measure the connections of traditional owners to sea country? Well, Justice Bromberg did it, you know. We won. We already won this case. That's the point here, you know. We're already in front. These guys are like the video ref coming back and saying, we want a replay. <laughs> so um, what they've done, and this is one of the things that I've been learning, is They've, se they've separated the word functions and made it, uh, it's a legal function. 
So interest and activities, the, the judges are saying, yes, we have interest and activities because of our cultural heritage mm -hmm. and the heritage value of our, you know, of our existence and um, our laws and cultures and our practices and our beliefs. Um, but the word functions is is kind of the the linchpin in it all and it's anyone who has a legal function in the area that's being leased by this mining company. So they've, you know, it's in Commonwealth waters, so it's off the coastline. And because we don't have native title, we don't, they, what they're saying is that because we're the traditional owners who live on the coastline, that's going to be most affected if something goes wrong. So if there's an oil spill, it's going to, it's going to reach our beaches. It's going to affect all of the life in that sea country, which then it has an impact on us. We're a part of that ecosystem of that environment. So the functions they're saying are only legal functions, which could be considered um, a role of a land council. So we have a, a land council. It's called the Tiwi Land Council. And then in Darwin, um, there's the head office of the Northern Land Council. So they deal with everything on the land and, you know, the other um, communities around the Northern Territory in the Northern part. Um, so for our, the Tiwi Land Council, what the what Santos did was in their, when they submitted their environment plan to NOPSEMA for approval or for review, really, um, they said that they'd contacted or con they said they'd consulted with the Tiwi Land Council, but they hadn't. All they did was send an unanswered email and two unanswered phone calls. And our judge said for a meaningful consultation to happen, it needs to be two-way exchange. Mm -hmm. You know, a meaningful consultation is like when you get a lawyer and they're going to represent you in court, something that's really important to you, they sit down and talk to you. They consult you about it before they go and stand in the court and represent you. But that's, that's one of the things that where we win because there has been no consultation. You know, it's an, it's an unanswered email and unanswered phone calls mm -hmm. that was made to the representative that they say should have represented all of us all three and a half thousand people who live on the Tiwi Islands and 95% of them are traditional owners. And <clears throat> we have eight clan groups on the Tiwi Islands and there's a clan group meeting at least every two to three weeks where all the clan group members come together and talk about things that are important to the community. So it's not impossible. They were trying to say that, you know, there's too many people and how could we possibly identify them? Yet, if you go onto any website that mentions the Tiwi Islands, it says, here are the clan groups and there's three communities. You're on 3CR Breakfast. We're currently listening to a conversation with Manapi clan representative Antonia Burke on a case uh, against Santos. If you're not familiar with the case, uh, Santos has been trying to drill a 4.7 billion dollar gas project uh, in the Timor Sea, about 300 kilometres north of Darwin, and uh, Manapi clan elder Dennis Tipakapalipa has uh, successfully overturned um, that project or stopped that project, uh, arguing in court that the Manapi clan was not adequately consulted. Last week, Santos 
appealed the decision in the federal court. Um, and back to Antonia, who is speaking on that appeal. Mm-hmm. Mm, and this this area of the Tiwi Islands, it kind of feels worlds away from down here in Melbourne. I know it's an area that's of immense cultural significance. Um, for someone who's never been or haven't really read a lot about it, can you give us an idea of what's um, at stake? Yeah, sure. So... Tiwi Island traditional owners, they own the Tiwi Islands. So there's, it's the second largest island in the country. So first you have Tasmania, then you have the Tiwi Islands. It's massive. It's over 8,000 square kilometres of land and about 1,000 kilometres of beaches around the coastline. And it's the most northern tip of the Northern Territory. Um, so... We have our song lines that reach as far as, you know, the wind travels, as far as the, the, the tides will flow. We have our ceremonies on those northern beaches. Um, in this case, we're talking about the Munupi clan. So the Munupi clan are at the most northern point of Melville Island, which is, makes up, you know, the Tiwi Islands. And we have our creation stories. Um, we have our our sea serpents that are the protectors of the ocean. All of our totems are connected to sea country and animals. Um, so we have what we call Taraklani, which is turtles. We have um, Iriko Bay, which is the crocodile, and all of the other sea creatures. So when we're born, our birthright as a Tiwi person is we get given a uh, access and connection to the entire environment through our kinship, you know. So if, if my mother was a, uh, a Tiwi woman and she was born into a family, she automatically, her birthright gives her a connection to an, an, an animal, you know, and most often it's a sea animal. And then she's taught the song, the dance, the spiritual connection and her responsibility to care for that sea animal. So it's like this sustainable environment that's created by giving people connection to something from the land or the sea or the water or the air, and it creates a sustainable environment. So nobody from that clan would be able to, from that uh, totem would be able to eat that totem, yet the other clans can, Mm. you know. So it's... It's this beautiful, complex system that's never been interrupted. Colonisation didn't interrupt it. You know, the Western education system didn't interrupt it. We still speak our own language. We still hunt off the land every single day. Um, People who have boats, it's like their responsibility to go out and fish and they, when we catch fish, we don't just take it home and put it in our own freezer. We share it with everybody, with the community, you know, which the people, the old people in the aged care, we can't hunt anymore to make sure they're still getting bush tucker. Um, if someone's got a car, they have access to, to go out hunting on the land. So they'll go and get buffalo or, you know, kangaroo or possum or uh, flying fox. We still eat all, everything off our land. And then they'll bring it back and share it with the community. You know, if you've got a gun, you go and you, you hunt with that gun to bring it back to the whole community. 
Mm. So we have a yeah we have a very deep connection to to everything and a, and an amazing system that is about the whole community, not just the individual. Mm. That's so cool. Thanks for sharing that with me. Um, and I, I have one more question for you. If you are successful um, in overturning this appeal, which it sounds like you probably will be, well, what do you hope will be set as a precedent for? these mining companies when it comes to consulting with um, traditional owners and First Nations communities? That they can't ignore us anymore. It's so convenient for them to be able to go and consult with a commercial fisherman or a tourism operator or a non-Indigenous, non-traditional owner group who has a commercial interest in, in, you know, our country, but they still want to keep ignoring the traditional owners. They don't want us to have any rights. So this case, as soon as we won, it made all traditional owners and clan groups, especially who live on the coastline, it gave them permission to speak for the deep sea country off the low tide mark because what they do in this law is the in in australia the government you know makes up all these rules about where we can and can't speak for country and in the coastal areas it's usually just the low tide mark which is about 5 kilometers off the coast so this case when we win again we encourage all clan groups and traditional owners to go on to the Nopsema website to find out if there are any applications to do seismic surveys where they blast air into the water to find out if there's oil or gas under the seabed. Um, find out if anyone's applying to explore that deep sea country and contact Nopsema and, and th- there's a process you can go through where you can make public comment on that area and you can request to be consulted about it. That's the part that can support traditional owners to be considered relevant people to be consulted about that deep sea country. Otherwise it's out of sight, out of mind. So as soon as we won this case, our message to the whole country was if you're living on a coastal area and you know that there's some sort of offshore petroleum activity or fossil fuel activity happening out in Commonwealth waters, don't just don't sit there and think that you don't have any rights to it because it's not a part of your native title or, um, you know, you have no rights to speak for it. You actually do, and that's what this case has proven and done for all of us. So please make noise. Go and find out if there's any exploration happening off the coastline. We can't allow the federal government to keep doing this and ignoring us in the process. They know we're smart. They know we're strong and they know we're organised and loud and then we're not going to let them do this. And that was Antonia Burke there speaking on uh, a recent appeal um, of a case between Santos and Manapi clan elder Dennis Tipakapalipa um, about a gas project off the coast of Darwin, about 300 kilometres north in the Timor Sea. Um, and thanks so much to Antonia for taking the time to speak with me last week. Such an important conversation, Jacob. It's quite astounding that despite the history of lack of consultation between 
traditional mm. landowners and mining companies that that could still be happening. You would have thought after the Jukun Gorge incident that this would be front and centre of process. Mm. No, it's certainly a, a landmark decision, which I think really sets a precedent um, for what you know proper principles should be. Mm. So let's continue to follow that case and um, update when that appeal is heard. Okay, we're going to move to our final segment for this morning, uh, speaking ahead of the uh, state election this Saturday. Cost of living is one of the key issues playing on the minds and wallets of Victorian voters as they head to the election booth this Saturday. But for some voters, cost of living is only the tip of a more deeply entrenched set of structural problems causing distress in the community. Jay Coonan is the coordinator and policy researcher at the Anti-Poverty Centre, a not-for-profit, politically independent organisation created by and with those with lived experience of poverty. He joins me now ahead of Saturday's election to explain the government policy at a state level, what it could look like and whether any party is coming close to delivering. Welcome, Jay. Hi there. How are you going? Very well. Thank you for joining us on Wednesday Breakfast this morning. Thanks. No worries. We spoke with Kristen O'Connell from your organisation ahead of the federal election in May when things were pretty grim for those leaving on job seeker payments. Can you describe the situation six months down the track? Uh, Well, at the moment, it has certainly gotten a lot worse than it was and it's a continuing uh, deteriorating kind of situation for many who are on payment. Uh, obviously, as we're all experiencing increased cost of living, um, but obviously the, those on basically uh, half the poverty line and that's you know, continually growing despite um, indexation to payments, which Labor claimed it was a raise, um, people are faring worse and worse. And we know that's coming directly from people's Rental costs is the largest, but also we're seeing it more with um, food and health costs as, you know, uh, Medicare um, deserts rise in certain areas where people are unable to bulk bill um, and are relying more and more on um, uh, uh, emergency services. But what we're also seeing as well is, you know, people just saying like, well, my rent is, you know, more than... What, it co- what I'm receiving in JobSeeker, I'm going to have to move. I don't know where I'm going to move. Um, and, yeah, it's just becoming quite a dire situation and there isn't really much uh, relief coming. Mm. Well, before we jump into the policies being put forward at a state level to address poverty, I wonder if you could first give us some background on the dynamics between state and federal actors in this area. Uh, could you explain the difference between the state's role when it comes to social welfare vis-a-vis the federal government and also whether, in your view, those two sectors of government are working together in the fight against poverty? Yeah, uh, so from a federal level, you see more um, kind of direct relief, say, through um, you know social security funding. So that would be Centrelink, um, where people are able to get JobSeeker or the Disability Support Pension, which is... The you know, major payments and parenting payments. Um, and then also you you see much broader range funding in welfare. So you see that in uh, healthcare 
um, and also, you know, uh, any funding that goes to the states uh, to try and you know, build, you know, public or social housing. That's where that comes to. So it's largely, you know, macroeconomic kind of funding. Um, and then there's also, you know, funding for charities and service providers that provide um, uh, federal services. So you might be looking at like NDIS, for example, uh, which, it, well, NDIS is split between both state and federal funding, but that, you know, feds also fund that. Um, and then you also see it with food charities and uh, not that I'd call them a charity, but the uh, employment service providers, which are the punitive service that people on payments must tend to, they receive federal funding. Whereas states, they obviously provide more direct funding to people, whether that's you know, through uh, local programs um, or uh, other supports as well. So there isn't really much of a connection because the... On a state and local level, they know what their issues are, but uh, their, their major issue is that they require more and more funding, but that funding is getting smaller and smaller or drying up, and there's no kind of relief coming from uh, federals either. So, yeah, um, that's kind of like the breakdown, and basically it doesn't really seem like there's been much of a conversation at all from any of the parties about this. You know, we're seeing youth mental health services in the east of Victoria whose funding has dried up basically during the election um, and kind of getting milquetoast statements from a federal politician when, you know, uh, during the election cycle, you could definitely see, or you know, uh, the major parties or even, you know, parties like the Greens offering to come in and fight to support those services, which you know, provide mental health supports to youth uh, in the east of Melbourne, and they're not doing that. Mm, that's really uh, problematic. Um, what are the major parties pitching in these areas to address the needs of, of those, you know, experiencing real poverty? Yeah, well, I mean, the, 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 the biggest from the major parties is you've obviously got Labor, who's... Uh, promoting their 12,000 social housing homes by the end of 2025, um, which we know is just woefully inadequate, um, considering that wait list on, in the public line, which I, I can't recall right now, but that is what we'll see is that we'll actually fall short of the increasing demand. So, you know, we'll actually see a deficit in the amount of housing um, by the time they deliver that service. Uh, obviously, the Liberals, <laughs> you're never going to look to them to... Uh, uh, actually provide anything of meaningful support. The only thing that I think that I could really stand out is they were offering $500 dental vouchers to people, which, again, um, you go to the dentist and you haven't been to a dentist in a very long time because it's incredibly expensive and the public, wait, public waiting list for dental is just, again, you're probably waiting at least a year just to get in. Um, you'll go take that $500 to a private dental uh, operator and they'll just be like, all right, you've got X, Y, Z wrong. That's going to cost you, you know, thousands of dollars. And you're like, okay, well, there goes my $500 voucher and my teeth are still uh, stuffed. Mm. Um, so, again, the majors aren't really working. They're trying to, again, play to the outer suburbs with infrastructure spending and need to increase that as a thing with the rail loop. But the Greens are the only ones who have really kind of uh, stepped in with their, you know, uh, uh, 200,000 over a decade, over 20 years for housing, um, and half of that, 100,000 dedicated to public housing. Mm. Um, but again, that kind of came 
late into the game for them as I suppose they saw the success in Brisbane with the Greens there and tried to replicate that model. And it hasn't really been, um, I, I, I suppose, mobilised or organised on the ground prior to the election. So hopefully this is something that they stick to um, and actually try and lobby the government because, as we know, housing in Melbourne, um, for many people right now, whether you're on payments or a low, you know, in low-paid industries like hospitality, they're, you know, trying to survive is just getting harder and harder every day. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. I, I feel like a lot of the dialogue that we're hearing um, in the mainstream media is about cost of living vis-a-vis homeowners and home buyers, a lot of reference to you know mortgage and interest, interest rates and the effects of inflation in, in, in that sort of area, but not really addressing the, the needs of people who aren't in their own home um, and possibly never will be. Um, what level of engagement have you seen by the parties in terms of actually speaking with advocacy groups and people with lived experience of poverty in developing their policies. Um, you've mentioned the Greens have put forward their uh, home build policy. Um, what sort of engagement was happening when they developed that? Um, in terms of the Greens, I'm, uh, I would be unsure. I would hope that, you know, they would uh, stick to their principles and try and obviously centre people who are in poverty and um, obviously react to their policies. But I guess the, the Greens structure in itself is more of a top-down model. So they would just be replicating models that were adopted federally and then organising them on a state level for, um, you know, their state. Uh, platforms, and in terms of the major parties, you know, I, I I I doubt that they would be incorporating much feedback from, you know, uh, people <laughs> with uh, you know living experience or who are currently living in poverty. I just know that's just something that the major parties just don't do, or they would do if you uh, arrived at their office with a lobbying troop. <laughs> mm. And we haven't seen much of um, Albanese in terms of supporting. Dan Andrews in his campaign. Um, Albanese obviously pitched to Australia um, his own personal background and the way he could identify with people uh, who are receiving um, social supports. That absence, does that have any significance for you? Um, I The only thing that comes to mind is he's too busy getting his frequent flyer miles up uh, as he gets around the world. Whether you know, I'm sure that has some relevant uh, foreign diplomacy uh, purposes. But at the end of the day, you know, as you pointed out, he's trying to use his credentials as you know the boy from Camperdown who has you know had a disabled mum and he grew up in poverty, uh, while also at the same time he's telling single mums with disabilities and kids with disabilities that they're just going to have to suck it up uh, during this cost of living crisis as you know affordable housing nowhere to be seen, public housing is just not there and uh, people's incomes are getting shorter and shorter. You know, um, at the moment, the Anti-Poverty Centre is running workshops uh, uh, to help build our response and a uh, bit of campaign ideas around uh, the Workforce Australia Committee, which is reviewing employment services. Um, and we were speaking with a single mum in Western Sydney who is just, you know, uh, you know, struggling to get by. So... You know, uh, Albanese kind of just 
using his uh, street cred uh, is just totally inadequate when people right now are suffering and um, they're told that, you know, they're just told to suck it up. But, I mean, in terms of him not being around in Victoria, uh, I, I think that maybe, yeah, it's probably his schedule, but also, um, yeah, I think Dan Andrews has quite a popular base despite all the COVID lockdowns and uh, far-right nuttery that's coming around, but I still think... Um, people still remember and see him as some kind of protector. Mm. And you m- mentioned the disability support pension as being one of the, the, the key um, government uh, supports. Um, obviously, mm. huge disappointment with the way in which NDIS payments are being dealt with at a federal level. Yeah. At a state level, um, what are the parties offering when it comes to addressing discrimination and inequality for Victorians living with disability? Yeah, uh, I've looked through uh, some of the, the platforms to try and get a sense of that, but you're not really ever given a quite a clear-cut answer when it comes down to it. Um, obviously, the, the NDIS, as it was rolled out in Victoria in 2019, had teething issues and there, there continues to be that. Um, but what's more concerning at the moment is your, of the rhetoric that's coming out of the federal government that's saying we need to make it sustainable, which is just, you know, uh, austeri- austerity language to say we're going to start cutting down on the services. So, you know, on a state level, it's still a bit unclear, you know, for people, the responsibility and of it and how to access some of the support and what is responsible for the state. But on a federal level, while that's going on at state level, they're already committed to start cutting down. And, you know, we've, we've heard through, um, through, you know, groups that, um, there, there are policy changes with that don't obviously require legislative change, uh, from the government telling people, uh, or providers and people who receive NDI funding, um, to provide services. Uh, being told that they need to start either moving people off it or find ways to cut costs. So, um, again, that's just another concerning thing, especially at the time when, you know, they're not even committed to ending massive tax concessions to um, uh, superannuation contributions or, you know, the, the dream of um, negative gearing and um, incentives to private housing, uh, you know, investors. Mm. It's just gone. Yeah, it's, this is um, really quite disturbing. Uh, so one last question, an important one for listeners. How can people find out more about the Anti-Poverty Centre's work? You mentioned some workshops you're running. Um, could you give us some details about what they're offering and how people can get in touch and be involved in your campaigns and so forth? Yeah, so uh, at the moment, uh, we're kind of wrapping up with our workshops now. Um, But what we'll be doing uh, at the beginning of the new year is um, we'll begin campaigning. Um, Thanks to GetUp, we've been able to get some funding to be able to give money to everyone who's contributed to that so far. Um, But what we'll be doing in the new year is um, taking, releasing a report based off of those workshops, and then we'll start beginning campaigning around the Workforce Committee to try and bring an end to mutual obligations and also to challenge the, 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 the stranglehold that employment services providers have over us. So that's what we'll be getting stuck into in the new year. 
Um, you can find out and get in touch and stay up to date with everything from our website, which is antipovertycenter.org. Antipoverty Centre is just one word. Um, and from there, you can also find our links to Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and those kinds of things. So, yeah, um, if anyone's interested in finding out how they can help out or get involved in the new year for those campaigns, um, love to chat. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And that was Jay Coonan from the Anti-Poverty Centre speaking about politics and poverty ahead of the Victorian state election. And you can track the policies of the major parties via the Victorian Council of Social Services website. That uh, organisation's acronym is VCOS. So if you head to VCOS, V-C-O-S-S, dot org dot au a policy tracker you'll find their comparison uh, between the liberal labor and greens policies and the anti-poverty center's website again is www.antipovertycenter all one word dot org fantastic thanks so much claudia and uh, to jay for coming on and speaking about such an important topic i think it's really come at the mm. forefront of a lot of people's minds heading to the polling booths on Saturday. Mm. I heard a uh, quote by the um, the CEO of the Victorian Arm of Food Bank, which is Australia's uh, largest hunger relief charity, and he was describing their food services as akin to a hospital, mm. and he said, we are the emergency part- department for people's tables. And I thought that was a really... Oh my gosh. Yeah, really sort of hits you hard when um, it's put in those terms, yeah. Mm, Yeah, well, thanks so much, uh, listeners, for for joining us today. We've got a couple of minutes left, if there's anything you want to plug. (laughs) Nothing pops to mind, Jacob. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, we'll wrap it up there. Thanks so much for joining us on Wednesday Breakfast. And thank you to all our guests this morning, um, Kirby, Jay, Antonia and... Gideon, Polia. Wonderful. Up, up next is Stick Together. Tune in to Rest is Survival, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast on 3rd of December... 7am to 7pm, we're talking about the role of rest in the anti-capitalist revolution. With programming by multiply marginalised disabled people and disabled broadcasters from the 3CR community. Visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2022. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.